0: Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 25, being recorded on Thursday, May 4th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Good evening, Jason, and let me be the first to wish you a happy
1: Star Wars Day, and may the fourth be with you.
0: Thank you very much, and congrats to you.
1: Thanks, thanks. I don't know if listeners know, but in case they missed it, we are excited to learn this week that we were announced as a top five retail podcast by Select.
0: Yeah, that was unexpected and super cool news. So we certainly appreciate all the support we've gotten from our listeners and appreciate their recognition.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we've been at this for, oh, about 25 episodes, 25 weeks, and it's good to win our first award. So very exciting.
0: First of many, I'm looking forward to the Emmy myself, but I am uh, certainly proud of our select.
1: Yeah, maybe we could do. We could be one of those people that gets an Emmy. What is it? An Emmy and Oscar. There's a whole acronym for them.
0: Yes, unfortunately, not an acronym I've had occasion to learn. <laughs> Me, but now that we're podcasting, maybe we we have a shot at this. So I'm we, are learn the <laughs> we are one step closer.
1: We we absolutely are. Um, you were in New York recently. What took you to New York?
0: I was. I was uh, there for the TransPerfect User Conference. So. TransPerfect is uh, the largest translation uh, service provider out there. A lot of people would know one of their brands, Translate.com, and they have an annual conference, and they were nice enough to invite me to come and uh, speak to some of their users.
1: Cool. Did you uh, do this in English, or did you try it out in Chinese? Or
0: I did. They seemed offended when I, I typed my entire presentation into Google Translate and just let it translate it for me. They apparently didn't think that was very funny. Mm, that sounds like the competition exactly. but it is interesting like so that's a whole group of users that are really focused on cross-border commerce and expanding internationally. so like to be honest, it feels like there's a awful lot of overlap um, with channel advisor users and that like it feels like a lot of folks, Use marketplaces and and uh, particularly channel advisors help to uh, to expand geographically and uh, many many of those same folks are figuring out how to do their their content and currency and so it was it was interesting to hear how everyone is uh, formulating their strategies for which countries to expand into and what the you know the unique challenges were in in each uh, geography.
1: Yeah, yeah. From a super high level in cross border trade, it seems like. Uh, the, the dollar's pretty strong, which has kind of made it hard to export from the U S um, into some countries, China is still very hot. Brazil seems to be kind of less exciting to a lot of folks. Um, and then India is, is kind of the, the new Brazil, if you will, it seems like everyone's looking at India and kind of wondering how they can get a part of the growth going on there is, uh, is that kind of the vibe you get from the show?
0: Yeah, I think that matched pretty well. What was a little interesting, one of the other keynotes was the former, one of the former CEOs of Gilt, who's now at Wish, which is, of course, a marketplace we've talked about a little bit on this show. And it was interesting. He was talking about their strategy at Gilt for expanding. And I was kind of surprised to hear it because what, what he said they did is they looked at their analytics and really just focused on the, the countries where they were getting the most customers coming to their U.S. site. And what surprised me a little bit about that is that I certainly would use the voice of my customers and you know customers that are jumping through a lot of hoops to try to buy your product and you know either either getting it shipped internationally or using a freight forwarder or whatever. But there's some there's such a wide variety in complexity in doing business in all these different markets. It feels like you can't just pick markets based on how bad customers in those markets want them. You have to also figure out what the the cost is of doing business. And to your point. Like what? What the currency ramifications are going to be, and what the the regulatory ramifications are, and so I was. It just sounded like the GILT geographic strategy was a little more simplistic than I would have expected.
1: Yeah, and and that always kind of can be a little misleading too, because one of the top two for any U.S. site I've ever seen is always Canada, and you know we see these people get really spun up about Canada, and they do all this stuff. They set up a .ca and people in Canada still go to their dot com, and, um, so you also have to kind of apply a matrix of where do you think the biggest opportunity is, uh, because sometimes the traffic is not lined up with that.
0: Yeah, e- exactly. And so to me, that it feels like voice of customer is one of the signals you'd use for judging opportunity, but there's a lot of other signals that you'd want to factor in, and then you'd also want to factor in that level of effort or complexity, and that you know then you know there's markets that are clearly going to percolate to the top.
1: Yeah. And I know when you're in a city like New York, you always keep a list of stores you like to go visit and see what kind of cool new things are up to. Did you get any time when you're in New York to do some store visits?
0: I did. Uh, you're unfortunately breaking my heart a little bit because I, I actually was particularly looking forward to it. I felt like I had a list of stores that I knew had opened in New York and I was really looking forward to finally getting a chance to see them. And uh, you know, while there were some interesting things across the board, I was frankly a little disappointed. I expected some of them to to be a little more innovative than they turned out to be, so I went to the Lululemon lab store, and you know I primarily went there for you. I know Lululemon is one of your favorite apparel retailers, and we we had talked on a previous show about some changes they had made to how they merchandise pants and how that had a dramatic effect on sales. So these lab stores, this. Is their only lab store in the U.S. It's modeled after a lab store they have in Vancouver, uh, Canada, where they're based. And part of the pitch here is that they have a factory making apparel in the back of the store, and they're making uh, local items that are intended to appeal to the local market, so specific cuts and specific uh, styles of of, uh, pants, for example, that you could only get in New York
1: do they actually are they custom or it's just more stylistic
0: it's more stylistic they're not made to order and so you know you walk into the store and the back half of the store sure enough there there are a bunch of sewing machines and folks you know seamstresses doing something to apparel right and that's kind of like a an interesting little environmental element to the retail design but i guess you know when you say lab store to me i'm looking for some innovation in the merchandising and it it you know it very basic store with basic fixtures and uh, athleisure apparel merchandised exactly how you would see it in any other athleisure store in the in the world so it just i maybe expected a little more innovation or or distinctiveness than than uh, i found did did having a
1: factory right in there make it noisier or no, kind of like awkward to see the people making your clothes.
0: It, no, I mean to be honest, it felt a little bit like retail theater to me because like the there clearly were not enough people there that they were making all the inventory for the store, um, and a bunch of the apparel in the store is like clearly not handmade. Um, and so while I'm sure they're making some items, it just it it felt like they you know they put the 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 factory there you know for ambiance as much as anything else. Interesting. I'm sure I'll get some hate mail from all our Lululemon listeners that will explain exactly what I missed in the store. But uh, if that's true, I would love to know what I missed. Yeah. So not too far from there, I got to visit Samsung 837. And uh, this is Samsung's new store in the meatpacking district. For those that aren't familiar with New York retail, Samsung has had a store in Columbus Circle for quite a while. They closed that store, they opened this much larger store down in the meatpacking district, and both the new store and the old store actually do not sell any uh, merchandise. So they're they're purely a showroom, uh, you know, similar to like a Bonobos guide shop, where they try to create uh, aspiration around the products, but they expect you to buy them from a different retailer or buy them online. Mm-hmm. And it's a cool space, like you know. So they're they're demoing all the Samsung products. The space is designed to accommodate events so they have a large uh, like three story high video wall with an amphitheater in front of it and they can do like small concerts and uh, events in the space. The all the merchandising of the Samsung product is like pretty nice but not revolutionary I guess. So, you know, it it would feel a lot like Apple's merchandising. I mean, they have these, you know, Custom wooden tables that feel similar to Apple Store tables, and they merchandise all their handheld products and all those sorts of things. But where it was more fun for me is they, you know, they have a kitchen where they're merchandising all the Samsung smart kitchen appliances, and so they have the the smart refrigerator that we've talked about from uh, from our CES recap, and they have a laundry room with the smart washer and dryer, um, and so you know, kind of putting a bunch of the products in vignettes that feel like your home, I thought was kind of cool. They have a bunch of lounge spaces, which are really designed for people that just hang out and socialize with their friends. And then they, they offer a bunch of free Samsung products to use in that space. So you can sit down at a couch in front of a, a Samsung 4K TV or you know, in a couch with a bunch of Samsung tablets. And they have a, a, a pretty darn tasty coffee shop um, in that space, so you could buy a latte and a, a delicious cookie uh, to enjoy while you were checking out the the Samsung goods.
1: Cool. Any um, virtual reality stuff? Do they have the their doodad there?
0: Yeah. So they they do. They had they had several cool gear demos. They have you know gear is their 3D solution. It, it uses the phone. Uh, Samsung mobile phone as the the source for the content, and you put it into into this headset, and then it splits the display between your two eyes. Um, so they showed a bunch of content there. They they project the same content on a big screen TV beside you, so your friends can kind of see what you're experiencing. They also have like a couple fake rows of movie theater chairs, and they you can sit down in a movie theater vignette and and watch like virtual reality movie content. So they had a couple cool VR things. And then one of the more interesting things is they had this great digital art installation. So I hadn't really heard anything about this. To get into this exhibit, they ask for your Instagram account or one of your social media accounts. Um, So I I gave them my social media account. And then you walk into this chamber that essentially is uh, completely dark and has has no uh, visible light coming from the outside. And you're basically walking through a tube that has video displays wrapped around you 360 degrees. And the floor is either video displays or mirrors that are reflecting the other video displays. So it's this very, like, kind of a max headroomy digital experience. And on all these displays, they're sucking all of your social media and your photos and everything that they've. They've learned about you from your digital f- uh, footprint, and you're kind of walking through your digital life, and it, it's actually really kind of cool. Neat. Mine was a little sad and boring, but but you could imagine if you had a more interesting life, it could be really cool. Like are you, All your stuff's about retail. Are you crazy? I'm trying to be more humble. It was super interesting to me, but I doubt it would be interesting to anyone else.
1: <laughs> one, one footnote for listeners, uh, anyone that has kids in that Minecraft sweet spot of... 7 to 12 uh they did just release minecraft on the samsung gear vr uh, oculus store and it is pretty amazing uh it actually makes me pretty nauseous it's so uh, so immersive that it's kind of pretty easy for you to forget where you are and and when i start flying i get a little kind of queasy
0: wow yeah i haven't gotten to try that yet but it does minecraft seems like in many ways potentially the killer app for vr and i'm i'm uh Particularly interested to to hear how the the Minecraft Hololens uh, experience turns out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then I went uh, uptown a little bit, like so that we're all in Lower New York for those first few stores. I then visited the Macy's store on uh, Herald Square. And uh, this is the largest department store in the U.S. There's battles back and forth as as, uh, retailers expand their store to kind of win that square footage thing. But this Macy's, by and large, is the largest store in the U.S. And they had recently remodeled their basement. So they now call it One Below, and it has a real tech focus. They have their merchandising 3D printers and wearables and a lot of accessories for mobile devices, and in general, it was pretty interesting. Like you know, they they were both selling products that were made on three D printers and selling the three D printers. That a lot of interactive displays, a lot of the gondolas and fixtures down there had digital signs built into them. Um, you know, there were a lot of displays from specific vendors. Like you know, Kate Spade would have a a, a Kate Spade branded set of mobile accessories. And they would have sort of digital signage immersing you in the Kate Spade brand. And then there um, is an Etsy Shop and Shop in the, the one below. And so this is one of the few places where you can go to a brick and mortar store and actually buy items made by individual merchants on Etsy. Cool. Well, um, I'm curious, how they do they pick top sellers or do they do vignettes by the seller? How
1: did they kind of display that?
0: Yeah, so I I get the impression that there's a Macy's merchant that has the final say. They actually have information in the display um, telling Etsy sellers how they could submit their goods for consideration for the display. And so I think the intent is it's both – Items that are curated by the Macy's buyer, you know, I'm sure that there's a volume threshold. And then they also, you have to be able to make enough so that they can inventory some of the goods, right? Like Because obviously, Macy's doesn't want to merchandise stuff that they only have one of. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So it's kind of curated. Yeah. and uh, But it was getting a fair amount of foot traffic, and people were shopping it, and they had sort of divided the Etsy space into genres like around jewelry or home decor things like that so it it's not a huge space it's not revolutionary but it's it's something i think we're going to see more and more of as there are these new interesting retail concepts that are born digital and then they find a way to to introduce them into traditional brick and mortar retail uh, shopping experiences so then I went to Barney's, and this is a, a store we talked about on a earlier edition of the show that opened in Chelsea, and it opened on the same block as the original Barney's. And I was frankly looking forward to this because Barney's had really billed this as a a their version of a digital show, and they talked about like leveraging beacons and having integration with the Barney's app, and having um, a lot of digital displays and uh, tablets for their sales associates. And so they, you know the the articles I had read about the store kind of had set my expectations pretty high, and I have to say it felt completely like a traditional Barney's to me, and there was very little evidence of any new or unique digital experiences. Mm. So no bait and switch, yeah, so maybe I don't know, you know maybe they they had some uh some rough starts, and they had turned off some of this stuff, but like you know I certainly tried the the Barneys app and looked for you know any any indication of geofencing or geolocating, and I really didn't get any any unique experiences there. The, the only digital displays in the store are sort of wayfinding displays near the elevator to tell you what what departments are on what floor, and it, it was clear that sales associate had been issued tablets, but it was also clear that sales associates weren't very interested in using the tablets to help So, so they were they're mostly sitting behind the counters as the you know traditional Barney sales folks sold you know the same way you'd you'd find them selling in, in any other store. Maybe they profiled you. What's the name for that? Were they uh, they? automatically profile you and they said oh this
1: jason guy is uh he's not going to buy eight hundred dollar pair of shoes we'll we'll exactly we'll put our tablets down
0: exactly they they used uh, image recognition and they they identified me and redlined me as a a low spender Mm. which i'm certainly is true in the barney's ecosystem and so then I went uptown. Ralph Lauren has a flagship store that they opened last year on uh, Fifth Avenue, and I had been to the store since they opened it. But after I visited the store, they installed the Oak Labs magic mirrors in all the dressing rooms. And so we've we've talked a little bit about magic mirrors. You know, there's a couple different technologies that retailers are trying in their dressing rooms. There are there are mirrors that actually go in the private dressing room and. Most people will be glad to know that those mirrors generally don't use a camera, uh, and that's the variety of mirrors that that Ralph Lauren has. They essentially have RFID tags on all the products in the store, and they have RFID readers in the dressing room. So when you walk in with three garments, uh, you get a little shopping cart on the side of the mirror that shows you the three garments you walked in with, and you can get some helpful information like, hey, this... Products available in some other sizes or other colors. You can uh, use a touchscreen to to ask for help or have a sales associate bring you a different size. And they have some like basic promotional messages and and content playing on the on the mirror. So it's like graphics that are overlaid over the reflective surface. And it, it all worked reasonably well. Every time I go to a store that have those, like the first thing I'm always interested in is have they cherry picked and only put RFID tags on a few products or do they, do they you know, have pretty good coverage of all their products? And in, in general, Ralph Lauren seemed like they had RFID tags on all the apparel that you might try on. Uh, they sell a lot of accessories in the store, shoes, ties, things like that. And those things all were not tagged. So you you... You could walk in with five items, and only the three that you'd likely put on were recognized by the mirror. Um, and it's just—it's frankly—it's a really expensive technology per dressing room, and it it can only serve one customer at a time. And it is moderately useful information to know what other sizes that garment comes in. But I'm always curious if that's enough value to justify the significant cost of these things.
1: Do you think it drives foot traffic at all? Did you see any evidence of women who are like, oh, I've got to see the awesome magic mirror?
0: No, so like, there's no marketing letting you know that there's something special in the dressing room. And most of the dressing rooms had it. That's always another thing is like, hey, did they did they install it in one dressing room as a pilot, or is it ubiquitously installed in all the dressing rooms? One big thing that's always interesting to check is it only in the women's dressing room because uh, it turns out women try on a lot more apparel than men. In the Ralph Lauren, it was in most of the dressing rooms, men and women. And I say most, like a lot of retailers, the they sometimes have a dressing room that does double duty as a sto- as a temporary storage room, which is not very uh, good practice from a loss prevention standpoint. But so you could tell these kind of like temporary dressing rooms did not have the mirror, but all the permanent dressing rooms did. But you wouldn't know they were in there until you walked in. You know, I was always interested to see if like people noticed it or people that got put in the temporary dressing rooms complained and wanted to go in another dressing room. You know, we didn't see any of that behaviors. And I talked to several of the sales associates to ask if they found the mirrors helpful or what their impression was. And, you know, none of them were strong. No, nobody complained about the mirrors or felt like they, they hurt the customer experience in any way, but nobody was a, a strong advocate feeling like they dramatically enhanced the shopping experience. One, one little thing that they do have that I think is really smart um, that I've seen before is the, the light temperature in the dressing room is adjustable. And from the magic mirror, you can say, show me nightclub lighting or show me daylight lighting or show me office lighting. And so when you're trying on some apparel, you can, you can kind of see what the color looks like in different lighting scenarios that you might have in your real life. Cool.
1: Cool. Yeah, so you can know if your outfit is good for uh, at work and uh, after work.
0: Exactly. And it becomes no surprise to you that my look does not happen by accident, right? Like I have to carefully curate that, and so it's super helpful to to know. Anyone that's met me knows that I'm completely lying, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, we tend, to, we geeks tend to look kind of pasty in any kind of light, so it doesn't really matter. Exactly, exactly. So that was kind of my retail tour. The Samsung store was was super interesting, not super popular. The Macy's one below was interesting. The Lululemon and the Barneys were a little disappointing. And the Ralph Lauren Magic Mirrors were good, but, uh, you know, I wonder if there's an actual business value there. Yeah. Well, bummer. Sorry, your trips weren't better. It was still fun to be shopping in New York.
1: Yeah, yeah, who can argue with that? And I have to admit, I'm a little bit down this week. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. Why? Well, uh, while you were galvanting in New York, I've been reading the news, and it seems kind of apocalyptic here in the world of retail. So just to kind of give you some summaries, and and I want to get your omni-channel, pick your omni-channel brain about this. So we have the Sports Authority filed for bankruptcy. We've mentioned this on the show. Um, just recently, they announced there's no buyer, and they're just going to liquidate the whole thing. Uh, Aeropostale has filed for bankruptcy, immediately closed five stores. Remains to be seen if someone will kind of rescue them out of bankruptcy or if they'll close all those stores. Uh, the Wall Street Journal had an article about retail being massively overbuilt. There was an article about, uh, so that means all the big guys are suffering. And then there was an article about free shipping is crowding out the SMBs, so the little guys are suffering. Uh, And then finally, uh, the next two that were were pretty brutal were, uh, The Street had an article about mall traffic, and it continues to just really be terrible, evidently, according to that article. Uh, And then last but not least, there was one that talked about uh, you know, this kind of addiction to discounting and a race to the bottom. So it's basically if you're small or big, you're doomed. And uh, if you survive that, then it's a race to the bottom. What do you think about all this uh, This doom and gloom? What's what's causing it and how true is it?
0: Dude, now you're bringing me down too. <laughs> It's funny because I saw many of the same articles that you referenced, uh, some of them while I was in New York shopping, and it it almost makes you feel like, is the store I'm in going to close while I'm in it? (laughs) (laughs) And as we've talked about before, there certainly is some truth to it there are a bunch of stores that have already closed this year and a lot of uh, retailers that are still operating are have, have announced plans to cut back on their stores we've seen Macy's talk about it we've seen Nordstrom talk about it we've seen Sears certainly like gets isn't getting increasingly aggressive in closing their stores and so i certainly think it's true that we do have too many stores in the U.S., and uh, that some of those stores are going to have to close. We could talk a little bit about why that is, I don't necessarily think it's, oh my gosh, the whole world's moving to online shopping and nobody wants to shop in stores anymore, and as a result, we're we're seeing all these store close. In general, a lot of retailers are public companies, and so they, they opened a certain number of stores last year, and their investors expect them to have similar or better growth this year. So that means if you opened 12 stores last year, you have to open 14 stores this year to keep the analysts happy. And at some point in that rat race, you run out of smart, strategic places to open stores. And so you start opening stores in less and less optimal locations. And then at the same time, if you're afraid to close stores because you're worried your store count is going to look unfavorable, you can't close stores when populations move away from that location you opened a store in. So early retail mentor of mine taught me that one of the signs of a healthy retailer is a retailer that's always opening new stores, but also always closing underperforming stores. Because it's just not the case that the U.S. population stays static or stay in the same locale. So if your stores are staying static, it means you're probably not matching the the market very well. So I think we've been in that rat race for a long time in the U S and we, we have a ton of people that are overstored. I think I've shared some of the, Square footage data before, but you know, in the US, we have 46 square feet of retail space for every man, woman, and child, and that's astronomically higher than any other country. So, like, most of Europe has about half that at like 23 square feet per person. Our neighbors to the north in Canada have like 13 square feet per person. We just have a ton of square footage, and at some point, a bunch of that space is not economically viable, and those guys have to close. I think the department store you referenced had sort of a particularly telling version. They compared square footage in in department stores, and there's 7% more square footage in department stores today than there were 10 years ago. But the revenue per square foot is down 24%. So, people are opening more square footage and that square footage just is working less hard than it used to.
1: Yeah. Their conclusion was that to get back to 2006, which I think is kind of what they're recommending. We need to close a fifth of retail anchors or 20%, which seems, it seems like a lot. And you know, you start to worry, does that start to create this death spiral of these malls where these anchors are going to close?
0: Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Those malls, cause there very clearly is a trickle down effect and if, if those anchors are closing, it's definitely going to have a ripple effect on a lot of the folks that originally bought that space or moved into that space because they they thought they would benefit from the anchor tenant's traffic. Yeah. At the same time, I would point out, all those mall operators are still profitable and they're profitable because they they operate a bunch of a malls that are growing at ten or twenty percent and have tenants like Apple that are driving huge traffic into the stores and it's it's the long tail of their portfolios. It's these c and D malls that that are seeing the most pronounced effect and they're you know they often have anchor stores that have fallen out of favor, right? It's it's all those stores where Sears was the marquee anchor or a JCPenney or something like that. So what's your prognosis? I think we're going through a painful but necessary correction and realignment. And I I you know, I think there're some retailers that clearly aren't going to survive and and we're we're certainly seeing examples of that. Um, But I think the healthy retailers are going to emerge with smaller fleets of stores that perform better and are better aligned to the needs of the modern, omni-channel, ubiquitous shopper. And so I don't think retail is going away. I think that... This isn't a fun period for retailers when they have to close stores like this, but they're far better off on the other side of this transaction than they are burning a bunch of their precious resources to maintain these underperforming stores that they should be using to invest in great customer experiences and great merchandises in the stores that customers do want to go to.
1: Yeah, and then what do you think about this kind of uh, this drug of discounting, and and how how can retailers get off that?
0: Yeah. So, unfortunately, I think the history has taught us that it's really hard to get off of that, right? Like, this is a age-old debate in in retail. Is you know, what's what's your fundamental pricing strategy? Are you everyday low price, which the modern era Walmart is the strongest champion of? Is like let's let's grind our cost down as low as we possibly can, and let's offer a consistent low price to consumers and then there are a bunch of promotional retailers that are like hey we can catch more attention by by yelling sale really loudly like even if we have to invent different sales all the time and you know i think jc penny is a marquee example of a retailer that like became completely addicted to sales and basically had ubiquitous sales always on and when you know ron johnson took over the company he you know rightly made a lot of jokes about how Complicated and confusing all the promotions were at JCPenney. Mm -hmm. There are pros and cons in academics debate about which model is better, but one thing that evidence has pretty clearly shown is once you become a promotional retailer, it's very hard to ever stop being one. So, Walmart was born everyday low prices, and they've never really fallen prey to heavy promotions. Nordstrom for most of their history, has been a full price retailer that had very limited promotions. And customers got used to those models and accepted those models. In the last couple soft years of retail, we saw Nordstrom get way more aggressive on promotions and offer many more sales. And Turns out, once you start doing that, it's hard to go back to your old way of living, right? Like, Ron Johnson famously tried to get out of promotional pricing at JCPenney and it you know almost uh, drove the company into the ground. Macy's did a more limited experiment of trying to get out of promotions a few years prior to JCPenney and had similar results. So there's a ton of evidence that once you start playing that promotion card, you're stuck with it. And the bummer is... At some point, the promotions that you used to do are no longer effective and you have to make them stronger and stronger. And so, you know, we've, we've talked to a lot of our peers in the e-commerce space that are saying, Hey, you know, our biggest promotion used to be this 30% off and 30% off is no longer moving the needle. Now we're having to go to 40% off to get the same kind of volume that we used to at 30% off. And so we're, we're seeing evidence of, deal fatigue and retailers having to dig deeper and deeper to have those promotions have the kind of effect that they're that they're hoping they have and so that's that's a real challenge for retailers i you know one of the the perfect examples that i look at that we've talked a little bit on that on the show lately is coach right and they were a luxury brand that had these high-end desirable products and they started Heavily discounting those products. They started making cheaper products for, for lower end consumers. They, you know, put a huge focus on their outlet strategy and they really eroded the, the luxury component of the brand. Right. And so that, you know, their, their AOVs got super low. Their e-commerce sales are down 60% in the last couple of years and no, nobody's e-commerce sales go down by the way, Scott. Yeah. And, you know, once you do that, it's really hard to restore that original luxury position. And I know that's something Coach is really trying to do right now because they, they have no other choice. But it's going to be interesting to see whether they're ever successful at resetting uh, consumer expectations about where about their price points and their, their value prop.
1: How long do you think this kind of period of toughness lasts? Is this a year, two years, six years?
0: What tends to happen is you you have this couple year softness that gets customers to sort of move off of their everyday low pricing strategy or their full line strategy and embrace more of these sales, but then there's potentially like a five or six year hangover from doing that, right? You know, it takes much longer to regain your old positioning than than uh, it did to sort of erode and and focus on promotions. And so I think the the specific article that you mentioned is talking about how there are a bunch of retailers in the apparel industry that have just you know been on that promotional r- race and now they're just at a point where they can't make money. And so their only strategy is to try to get out of the promotional space. And I think they're going to find a painful several years to try to climb out of that hole. And unfortunately, a bunch of those retailers are also in the bad malls we just talked about, right? And so, you know, frankly, I don't think those retailers are likely to successfully emerge.
1: Yeah. Might as well just throw on a fifty percent discount.
0: <laughs> yeah, or I, I would yeah, do it as do it as slow as you can.
1: Yeah. Okay. One percent of the time. Exactly. So that was kind of a, a, a package of news was kind of the apocalypse for retail, kind of a theme, um, and a couple other things that that happened over the last couple of weeks. We did our deep dive last week in Amazon, so we've got a, a fair amount of news that stacked up on us here. Um, One that was interesting is um, eBay, when they split from PayPal, and we just anniversaried that, uh, they they took eBay Enterprise and Magento and and they all got split up into these various pieces, parts. Uh, There was this really kind of weird fact that eBay Enterprise was no longer part of eBay, but still called eBay Enterprise. And they, they finally, it seemed like maybe they had about a year to kind of find a new name and they have now rebranded as radio. They also announced that they're sunsetting what used to be called the GSI platform and moving a lot of those customers to Demandware over a period of time, um, and it seems like they're going to be focusing on – and this is kind of more your forte of kind of more omni-channel kind of technology. So ship-from-store, um, buy-online, pick-up-in-store kind of enablement, um, which was an acquisition the GSI guys did way back when. Um, and uh, just kind of an interesting name. We, we know the, the GSI slash eBay Enterprise, now Radial guys, really well. Um, and we're kind of giving them a hard time. You know, Does this mean you're only going to be selling tires uh, what, what do you think about that That kind of rebrand?
0: Yeah, well, I think if you're going to rename yourself after a tire, you should at least rename yourself after like the most modern cool tires and be like some kind of run flat. It seems kind of old school to rename yourself after a radial tire. Yeah, or you could be like donut tire. Exactly. Yeah. So obviously, I think it makes sense that they eventually had to move away from the eBay name, which was like increasingly confusing. So, you know, I think it's hard these days to come up with a cool name. Like, you know, it's it's hard to name something that you can get a URL and and, you know, everyone would love to have a name that has like great meaning for their business. So I'm going to give them a pass. I think it's it's hard to pick a name. And I'm sure over time we'll all get used to them being uh, radial. There are a bunch of services that GSI has always been really good at providing. Like they've been a very good three PL that you know you can use to inventory your product and warehouse your product and ship your product when you sell it. So that you know clearly is going to continue to be a core radial service. You mentioned all the omni-channel stuff, but there are a bunch of other services that were bundled in the GSI platform that they never really heavily promoted but that you just got when you were on gsi and those are things like a payment gateway and so now they're saying hey we're going to productize our payment gateway and try to sell our payment services and i'm going to be really interested to see how that plays out because they historically they had a captured audience to sell their products to so they didn't have to be the best and of course there are, you know our payment gateways out there like chase and and uh, cybersource that do a a really good job and have to compete every day to win customers. So it's going to be interesting to see whether the the radial products are, you know, end up being competitive with those sort of best in class uh, other offers on the open market.
1: Yeah, it kind of reminded me of Digital River. They did a similar kind of thing and I don't know if you follow them, but they were they were really big in in the days when uh, Microsoft and Symantec and all these guys wanted to outsource their you know this annoying thing called e-commerce, uh, and then once those companies realized it was strategic, they pulled it in. And then Digital River said, "Okay, we developed this really cool payment gateway." And uh, I, you know, I think they it's been tough for them just to kind of slice that off and sell it separately, even though it had you know, you know pretty good set of features around CBT and you know some kind of DRM licensing kind of a thing. So i i it felt very similar to me oddly enough, kinda of history repeating itself when they were kind of componentizing that and selling it differently
0: yeah no i th- I think it's a very good analogy um in in the same way like digital river did become really good at one particular thing um they they built an e commerce platform that was really good at selling digital goods, so you know stuff you buy and then download directly from the seller. And, you know, I honestly still think it's the case that Digital River is better for those kind of sales than any of the other like enterprise e-commerce platforms are at digital goods. And so in the same way that GSI is really competitive at, at their 3PL and remains to be seen whether some of those other product offerings can be successful, Digital River has remained super. Uh, competitive at e commerce platforms for digital goods, and they really struggled to successfully productize any of the other pieces of their offering. So, you know, you uh, unfortunately for radial, you might be very uh, prescient in your prediction.
1: Yeah, we'll have to, we'll be keeping a very close eye on it here at the Jason and Scott show. The There was some payments news this week you may have missed while you're in New York. So uh, it's part of PayPal's a separate company now, and they announced their, their, uh, Q1 16 earnings, um, you know, is pretty good. There, there was a couple of tidbits in there. They they have a feature called One Touch, which is kind of like the equivalent of uh, you know click to buy kind of thing or uh, One Touch Buy. And they, they announced that according to ComScore, the conversion rate of that is very strong. And, and this is a kind of a uh, – it's 87.5%, and normally they compare it to 50%. This is a confusing conversion rate. It's kind of like the people that start checkout that actually kind of finish it. So this payment system seems to be doing really well, but it's really only being used by 21 million users out of the 184 million. And they said they're pushing it as fast as they can, but – Sounds like consumer adoption and maybe merchant adoption are, are kind of slowing that down. But this could be one of those uh, those things that we, you and I have this kind of fun, ongoing debate about mobile uh, you know, conversion rates. Seems like this one could be a needle mover. Uh, and then kind of wrapped in there, uh, they've had this uh, PayPal-acquired Braintree, and Braintree had this really weird little kind of consumer-to-consumer experiment of a payment mechanism called Venmo. Uh, this thing has just been growing like a weed. It has it, been growing north of 100% since uh, I've ever followed it, uh, and it came out 154% year-over-year year this quarter. Um but there's a little bit of a challenge. Number one, it's just a way for people to send money to each other and they don't charge a fee unless you do credit cards. So all the all the millennials use it for just person to person ACHing, which is which is great for uh, great for sending money to each other. Uh, and, and, and the use case typically is you're out with a bunch of your biffles, you're a millennial of, in this scenario, you're out with your biffles, um, and someone pays the check and you can just kind of Venmo money back and forth and say, okay, your part of the check is this, and they Venmo them to the person that pays the ultimate check kind of thing. Um so that was the good news. The 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 bad news is it did announce that the FTC has opened up a uh, deceptive practices kind of a investigation into Venmo, and it really spooked a lot of the Wall Street folks because there was like no real declaration of what what could possibly be run awry within Venmo, uh, and then also you know they said. We don't really make any revenue from this, and this this investigation could be quite expensive. So, so a little bit of a mixed bag there. It sounds like this. Uh, I definitely wanted to um, hear your thoughts about the the One Touch payment system, and then what you think about Venmo.
0: Yeah, so I, I'm a big fan of the One Touch payment system. I agree with you. There's some evidence in this data set that when we can make mobile checkout really low friction, that we have a lot more success, and so. It's encouraging to me. In the U.S., I'm a fan of PayPal as a mobile wallet. Again, they're the second largest mobile wallet behind Amazon, but they don't have a lot of the baggage that Amazon has. And so then when you layer on this really low-friction checkout experience with a pervasive authentication where you only have to authenticate yourself once and you stay authenticated across multiple sites, it's a pretty cool experience. The The big challenge is going to be, how do you get from 21 million users using it to 184 million users using it? And one thing that makes you nervous is when you see, hey, we have this great new customer experience and it's much better and only, you know, I don't know, 15% of our users are adopting it. The, the first thing that jumps to my mind is, shoot, that's because a big percent of that 184 million users aren't active users. And so I, d- I don't know if that's true or not. I certainly hope not for PayPal's case. But generally, when users are active on a platform and that platform makes some improvement, you expect to see the majority of those users migrate to the, to the improvement. And so the fact that only 21 million out of 184 are on it is is a little concerning. But the fact that the 21 million are having way less checkout abandonment than we normally seem is super encouraging.
1: Cool. Uh, and then the last thing I wanted to pop up is, uh, we surfaced this first on the show, uh, and target is now testing that robot. I forget his name, but Tally. Tally. Yeah. Well, obviously. Uh, and that's the robot that kind of goes down the aisles and uses some kind of image recognition to count the the inventory on the shelves. So, uh, there's a funny picture in the article that kind of shows people walking around the Tally as it's zipping through a target store. I when we talked about it, I kind of envisioned it, you know, Roomba-like waking up at midnight when the Target store is all empty and and then it runs and does its little tally. But this was this you know, I don't know if this is how it will operate, but they showed it kind of like out there with customers, which was kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm excited about that. I, I think uh, whether tally is ultimately... Commercially viable uh, or not, you know, is one question. But like the idea of automating inventory management is an exciting proposition. And we've talked a lot about how important buy online pickup in store is and how that's, you know, frequently a cruddy experience because the inventory is wrong. So if uh, image recognition tools like Tally can make that inventory more accurate and, you know, require less labor to do it, that's a huge win. I'm, pretty sure the photo is kind of a gimmick like I I don't think retailers tend to run those things in the aisles while shoppers are pushing around shopping carts I can imagine a lot going wrong with that there are you know of course a lot of stores that are open 24 hours a day including some targets and so then you would have to use them during open hours but you would still use them during low traffic hours and so to me, Target's a great test case, right? Like, there's a wide variety of different products on the shelf. The shelves aren't optimized to be seen from the, the robot. And so if Tally can truly successfully do cycle counts in a Target store, then to me, that's going to prove the use case.
1: Yeah, and um, uh, what... Well- We'll put a link to the article, and then in the article, uh, we'll put it over on Retail Geek, and then in the article, there's actually a video if you want to watch the TallyBot kind of zip around and count stuff. It's a pretty good little video, so I recommend folks that are interested watch that.
0: Yeah, a fun behind-the-scenes uh, note on the show. Whenever Scott says, we'll put a link in the in the notes, what he's really doing is signing me up for more work. Yeah, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's why we call it a partnership. Exactly. That's how you become an executive chairman, as you become good at delegating. <laughs> yeah, so I think you covered a lot of the stuff that I found interesting as well. A, a few other things I would touch on. A couple brands have just started piloting a commerce ad format on Snapchat. So Snapchat is a fast growing, very popular platform, particularly with these millennials that everyone wants to reach. And like a lot of the social platforms, they, you know, they were born with no monetization strategy, right? And then they added this whole discovery experience where brands could have sort of branded experiences on the Snapchat platform and, and they, they sell those discovery slots. And uh, this month, they, for the first time, have launched a direct e-commerce experience where you can actually purchase a product. And so uh, I think Target and Lancome were the first two advertisers. And I was curious to see how that would play out. Um, And as it happens, what you literally do is in the Snapchat interface, you go to Discovery and you say, hey, I'm interested in the Cosmopolitan Discovery Channel. So that's a channel with content from Cosmopolitan Magazine. And you swipe through these various articles that Cosmopolitan has offered on the Snapchat platform, and occasionally there will be an ad. And the ad could be for a, a target product that, that's related to the Cosmopolitan content. And when you swipe down on that target ad... It literally reveals the target mobile website behind the Snapchat content, and so you're kind of like a punch out browser within the Snapchat platform that lets you conduct a transaction on target. so in this case, target is the seller of record they're you know they're not Snapchat is not trying to become a commerce platform and get between the consumer and target so I'm always interested in these platforms, whether they try to conduct the transaction themselves and keep it super seamless and low friction on the platform, or whether they they try to avoid complexity by throwing you onto the retailer site to consummate the purchase. And in this Snapchat case at least for now it's, it's the latter.
1: Yeah, this, this uh, reminds me, I saw something I wanted to ask if you know what was going on. So I was on a college visit with one of my kids. We were at the University of South Carolina. There's this tent with all these like disco lights going on. So we were obviously drawn to it. And uh, it ended up being Nordstrom doing some kind of a Snapchat promotion for seniors where um, you had to geo-check in through Snapchat, do a selfie with a thing. There's like these series of events, social things you had to do um, and then it verified if you were a senior or not, which we, you know, we got up to the point We, you know, neither of us was a senior. So, uh, a college senior. So, you know, that <laughs> At it was first really, I thought you
0: meant senior citizen. I'm like, wow, that's an interesting <laughs> demographic to target on Snapchat.
1: No, it's collegiate seniors. And then we, we couldn't tell what's going on inside, but they were like giving out gift cards. It seemed like, and there was like some kind of an inner to win and it almost seemed like a very expensive way for them to get Snapchat followers was kind of the only thing I could really figure out. Or, or and 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 people generating user-generated content around Snapchat it was it was quite curious. I couldn't really figure out exactly what their strategy was there.
0: Yeah, there's a a slightly less expensive version of that promotion that Snapchat does often, which is they offer these custom overlays. So, when you take a picture on the Snapchat platform you want to share with your friends there's a set of canned like sort of graphics that you can put add to your picture before you send it Yes yeah, lenses lenses thank you and so a common promotion they do is these geofenced lenses. Only when you go to a Nordstrom store do you get access to the Nordstrom lens. Only when you go to a Vera Bradley store or a Lily Pulitzer store do you get access to the Lily Pulitzer lens. And then you can start collecting these lenses, which sort of gamifies the platform. And then once you've collected it, you then can use it in any of your pictures. And so, you know, Nordstrom has multiple sets of, of geofenced lenses that they've offered over time. But when you decide the platforms, important to you two things you need to do to get to a critical mass you need enough users and you need enough content so it's not super surprising that Nordstrom would target some specific markets and say hey we're gonna we're gonna actually put up some uh, bribes or some you know gift (laughs) cards in in order to simultaneously get you to activate our channel on the platform and contribute content
1: we heard some of the folks saying they got hundreds of dollars, so I don't know
0: how to Wow, that's that surprising. Looks,
1: yeah. yeah, it seemed like they were they were being quite generous to get the whatever social content they were after.
0: Yeah, I can't speak to that particular promotion, but that that seems like an expensive acquisition strategy. And then maybe just a couple other little tidbits. Uh, we've talked a lot about Bonobos Guide Shops on this show. I mentioned them earlier in the show. Bonobos opened these stores where they merchandise all the product they have fashion advisors that help you pick products and and check your sizes but they save money by not having stores that have physical inventory so you visit the store to discover what you want and then you purchase everything online and they ship it direct to you We've been talking about them forever. When, you know, they're always an example when we talk about digital brands going brick and mortar and how they do it differently. And they've had these stores for a while, but the Chicago Trib recently ran an article quoting Andy Dunn, the founder and CEO of Bonobos, saying that that strategy has really worked well and that they're aggressively opening new guide shops and that they're sticking with a strategy of not putting inventory in them. And up until now, you could have uh, had a hypothesis that maybe the guide shops are a little bit of a gimmick and that they've opened a few and that they're good brand ambassadors, but that you know we're not going to see them dramatically expand that. Or if they do expand that, they're going to break down and put live inventory in them because they're going to need the stores to make more money. And so the fact that the Andy is doubling down on the guide shop strategy is interesting to me, and it's, it's sort of a proof point for that model. So I'm I'm going to be uh, eager to continue following that. Yeah, I think I saw they opened a n- store in Philly, and then another one in
1: Maryland, and then like in Chicago they have two now, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Andy is actually originally from Chicago. I have a little bit of a retail man crush on him. He's one of these annoying guys that seems good at everything he does, and he, you know, infrequently he has a blog and he'll write a new article. But they're all like super insightful and great. And so I, I hate it when people are just easily able to crank out great content that I enjoy. You have a bromance. It's a unreciprocated one-way bromance. Oh, that's yeah, the worst. I haven't met him yet, but hopefully he's listening, and and uh, you know he'll he'll ask to be on the show.
1: Yeah, yeah. We can we can just listen to you gush. It'll be it'll be fun.
0: Once again, we have rapidly run out of our time. Of course, I'd love to remind the users that uh, the listeners rather that we love getting your feedback, and if you enjoyed the show, we'd greatly appreciate you writing us a review on iTunes. And so, until next week, we'll wish everyone happy commercing. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review.